You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science alone. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr. Andrea Love. And boy, do we have a treat for you this week. I am so excited. Um, First and foremost, we have to do a shout out. This is our 30th episode of the podcast. Isn't that crazy? I can't even believe it. Yeah, it's exciting. So we also have some exciting news for you all. Um, If you've listened to the past few episodes, you've heard us mention that we were nominated for a Data Hero Award in the Provocateur category, and we were super honored to even be considered, to be totally honest. And we found out, was it yesterday? I guess it was the day before. Wednesday. Wednesday, Wednesday, yeah. That we won! We actually (laughs) won! And here's what they said. Um, With their unbiased science podcast, Dr. Love and Dr. Steyer made data communication accessible and trendy. They've pushed buttons, challenged boundaries, and all the while did the research and work needed to help the scientific community and the public better understand the pandemic. We're still reeling from this <laughs> I just love the fact that we're called trendy. <laughs> I know. No one's ever called me trendy, Andrea. No, me neither. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So we just wanted to thank you all for the support that you've shown us and for tuning in and for following our social media channels. Um, we really pour ourselves into unbiased science. This is a total passion project and something that we love doing. So thank you all for coming on this ride with us. <laughs> Okay, next up, Andrea, I thought we had to mention what we did yesterday. I'm I'm super excited about it. We were invited to speak to 400 middle school students at East Lyme Middle School. And we have a special connection to the school. Andrea, would you like to share? Yeah. So my mom is a 7th and 8th grade science teacher at East Lyme Middle School, or ELMS as we call it. And um, over the years, I've gone and done guest speaking things with them to talk about what I do in research and what I do in um, you know my current career and what it's like being a scientist. Um, and so this time, we both Jess and I came in, and obviously this was on Zoom, but um, we talked about, you know, our different careers in science so that not all scientists look the same and, you know, the diversity of different careers in STEM, kind of similar to what we talked about in our podcast episode about that. And then, of course, we provided some updates about COVID-19 and the really exciting new pediatric vaccine clinical trial updates because, of course, those students are right in that age group um, where, you know, they're not quite eligible for the currently authorized um, demographics, but based on this new data, they might be able to get the vaccine soon. And you know, Andrea, going into it, I was terrified. I had <laughs> flashbacks to when I was in middle school, and I don't know, I was super intimidated of the kids back then, and I guess I still am today. So I thought that might be a fun icebreaker for us. So, Andrea, what were you like in middle school? Oh, 
gosh, I was still a nerd for sure. Um, I ran cross country. I did judo. So I was kind of like a jock nerd. Um, you know, definitely I developed very early physically compared to a lot of the other girls in my class. And so I routinely got like called into the office for distracting the boys or and it wasn't like intentional right it was just like I had you know breasts and most of the other girls didn't yet right and it was this thing where like I was already feeling uncomfortable in my body to begin with and you know we're kind of shining a light on it but you know aside from that I was still very athletic and so I kind of you know tried to pour myself into that. I was I was very actively competing in judo back then, but I was still very much a science nerd. Okay, I am dying right now because I actually I had the polar opposite experience. I was a late bloomer. I was one of those girls just dying to to, <laughs> to get my period and to you know to to blossom. That didn't happen uh, in middle school, and so they would actually put signs on my back saying "Got milk." I was no. tormented. Yeah, it was Aww. it was pretty rough. And you know, the kids used to make lists of you know who's the hottest girl. Oh and, my gosh, I know. Oh, so I never made that list, but I am proud to say I always made it to the top of the personality list. <laughs> do, do it that way, you will. But anyway, Andrea, we are also celebrating one other very special thing today, which is the anniversary of your defense. Seven years ago, you became Dr. Love. Yeah, that's true. April. So we're obviously recording in advance. So this is is Friday, (laughs) April 2nd. Um, So April 2nd, 2014, I defended my PhD thesis. Oh my gosh. And it couldn't be more perfect. It's really (laughs) unreal because today's topic, which we'll talk about in just a moment, is Lyme disease. And that just so happened to be Dr. Love's defense topic. Yeah. So this this was unintentional. (laughs) I know. I didn't make this connection when we actually planned these sequence of episodes. Oh, gosh. Andrea, I'm having flashbacks to being a grad student. And it's so hard to believe that it was, I mean, now almost a decade ago that we entered graduate school. I I saw this post on Instagram talking about imposter syndrome in STEM from the perspective of a graduate student and then stumbled onto this really awesome page called Women Who Engineer. Oh, yeah. I love them. And their STEM stories that they did for Women's History Month were really inspiring. Um, You know, even to this day, I feel like I struggle with imposter syndrome um, amongst all of these, you know, esteemed scientists in different fields. But women who engineer have become the epicenter of inspiration for college students and young women who are entering engineering and really, you know, the entire STEM community as a whole. And from personal experience, I can say, uh, and I'm sure you can too, undergrad for STEM students isn't always easy. And having a place where our community can connect and network digitally via the art of storytelling is pretty awesome. Um, And I love that they feature internship opportunities and their followers have been known to keep each other informed when a company is hiring. I love that. And it's so important. Um, You know, we know that women are underrepresented in STEM careers on the whole. And so it's so critical that we have this way to network and find new career opportunities. So make sure you guys go check, um, check it out at Women Who Engineer when you get a chance. 
Okay. So, Andrea, before we dive into today's episode, maybe we can just briefly recap last week's history of vaccines. And this was kind of cool because we took a little bit of a break from COVID and we went way back in time, thousands of years to the beginnings of vaccination. Even before, of course, before modern day vaccination, we talked about something called variolation. If you didn't listen to that episode, you really have to check it out. We we talked about how they used to, um, they, they would grind up the dried scabs from people who had smallpox and actually blow it up the nostrils of folks who were healthy to prevent them from getting sick. Um, yeah, yum, right? <laughs> and then we talked about some famous um, some famous uh, figures in our history, people who are instrumental in the development of modern-day vaccines. Um, anything you wanted to highlight, Andrea? No, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of the, the, the famous players, Edward Jenner, Louis Pasteur, um, Robert Koch, you know, we kind of do a nice little timeline of where we started and where we're going with regard to the development of vaccines. And we Definitely encourage you all to check it out. I think it gives everybody a real appreciation for how far we've truly come. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, so let's dig in. So guys, in the interest of full disclosure, I have zero knowledge about Lyme disease. Zero. All I know is that when I was a kid growing up in Brooklyn, occasionally we would take weekend trips to Pennsylvania. And I picture like Troop Beverly Hills. <laughs> we, we were not. We were city folk. We had no business going to rural Pennsylvania. And I would just, I remember my, my mother warning me to be careful of, you know, going out in the brush and careful for ticks because I could contract Lyme disease. That's it. That's the extent of my knowledge. So we um, we put out a call to action, I guess, for our followers on social media, and we asked them to submit questions. So today I'm going, first of all, we're going to listen to all that Dr. Love has to share. This is really her area of expertise. And then I'm going to chime in with what we've heard from the herd and ask Andrea questions. Um, and again, learn from your incredible body of, uh, of expertise. So Andrea, do you want to set the stage? Yeah, here? absolutely. Okay. So Lyme disease is for many, many different reasons, um, rife with misinformation. There's a lot of um, inaccurate claims that circulate in the general public on social media, in general media, by celebrities. Um, it's it's made, you know, what is true and what isn't very challenging for the general public to really tease out. Um, so the first episode, this is probably going to be a two-parter. Um, this first chunk is really going to be focused on, like, the facts, the basics of, you know, the whole infection, what it means, treatment, et cetera. And then the second episode is going to be focused more on the common misconceptions, the different types of controversy, and debunking a lot of the pseudoscience and the myths that circulate so prevalently um, around Lyme disease. All right. So here's our first question that we heard from the herd. I heard that all ticks carry Lyme <laughs> disease. Is that true? No, not even remotely close. So let me kind of set the stage here. Lyme disease is one of many infections that we call tick-borne infections. And ticks are a very broad class of arthropods. Um, and, and these are, you know, as you imagine, they're, you know, hard-bodied organisms that have, you know, many legs. They 
feed off of other organisms by drinking blood meals, basically. There are a lot of different tick species, which a lot of people don't actually realize. So there are, broadly speaking, hard-bodied ticks versus soft-bodied ticks. There's different species within each of those kind of groupings. So we've got the black-legged tick, which is very often called the deer tick. That's what people think about when they think about Lyme disease. Um, The official name is the black-legged tick. This is ticks in the genus Ixodes. Um, We also have the Lone Star tick, which is um, a different tick. And we have, um, you know, different types of ticks called dog ticks. We have the brown dog tick. We have the American dog tick. We also have um, the Rocky Mountain wood tick. We have the Western black-legged tick. And all of these ticks live in different areas. And we're going to focus mostly on the U.S. because Lyme disease is most prevalent there. But of course, there are ticks elsewhere in the world as well. So the the black-legged tick is most common on the eastern U.S. So this is east of the Rockies. The Lone Star tick is most prevalent in the southeastern U.S., um, less common in the northeastern parts of the U.S. It's a much more aggressive tick. Um, these all have very distinct appearances. So we're going to post that picture on the website. And neither of these are found west of the Rockies. The brown dog tick is found everywhere in the U.S. Uh, The American dog tick, which is also sometimes called the wood tick, is found east of the Rockies uh, and also in California. The Rocky Mountain wood tick, as you can imagine, is found in the Rocky Mountains. Um, So the northwest and also southwestern Canada. And then the western black-legged tick is found along the California coast. So... So today I learned that <laughs> there are multiple different types of ticks. But so Andrea, do they is it all the same type of disease or illness that they spread? That's a great question. So there's a lot of different, as I mentioned, a lot of different tick-borne infections, and each tick serves as what we call a vector. So that's a vehicle for transmission for different potential pathogens. So if you guys remember us chatting about COVID, we talked about tropism, meaning viruses can really only infect certain types of organisms and certain species and certain cell types. Well, the same is true for, for these different tick-borne illnesses. So some of these can't live in certain species of ticks, and therefore if they can't live in the tick, they can't be passed to an animal that a tick feeds on. And so all of these different ticks have the capacity to spread different infections. Not all of them spread the same illnesses. Some pathogens can be spread by multiple different species of ticks. Um, And also, you know, these ticks don't live in the same areas of the world. So there's a lot of kind of diversity in the geography of where a disease might be found simply because the tick just doesn't live there. Huh. Um, So, so Andrew, I'm sorry to interject, but I guess when I, when we talk about tick-borne illnesses, are we talking about viruses or bacteria? Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. 
and you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Great question, and it's all of the above. So there are viral infections that are transmitted by ticks. There are bacterial infections that are transmitted by ticks. And there are also parasites. So these are protozoan um, parasites. These are things that are actually what we're calling a eukaryotic cell. So these are these are types of pathogens that um, actually behave much more like, like human cells. They have a nucleus and things like that. So um, I'll just run through a couple of examples because I think People don't always understand the scope of what a tick really can spread. And I think when we think about Lyme disease, there's a lot of fear based around it. And there's a lot of other more worrisome things. Not that you should always be worried about ticks, but that there's a lot of other more serious things that are transmitted by ticks. So so there's one called babesiosis. And this is a parasite that infects red blood cells in our body. And this is the, the parasite is called babesia. And mortality rate for babesiosis is actually relatively high. It's 5 to 10%. Um, and this is transmitted by black-legged ticks, which happen to be the same species that can transmit Lyme disease. And we're going to get more into that quickly. But um, And it actually can also be transmitted via blood transfusions. But there is a treatment available, and the treatment involves antiparasitics. So these are going to be similar treatments to what you might get for something like malaria, which is also a parasite that we, um, you know, humans encounter. Another example is a bacterial infection called anaplasmosis. So this is caused by a bacterium called anaplasma phagocytophilum. And this has a case fatality rate of less than 1%. Um, It can cause some severe illness, but there is antibiotic treatment. And I think it's important to understand that Bacteria can be killed by antibiotics. Parasites can be killed by antiparasitics. Antiviral infections cannot be killed by either of those. Certain antivirals can inhibit the replication of viruses, but there's no treatment that cures a virus, um, and that's important. Another really serious one is Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, and this is probably the most serious tick-borne illness that we know of, and this has mortality rates up to 30%. And this is transmitted by different ticks um, that that would transmit Lyme disease. So the American dog tick in the eastern, central, and western U.S., the Rocky Mountain wood tick in the Rocky Mountains, and the brown dog tick in the southwest. And the mortality risk increases if you don't treat within five days of symptoms. But again, this is caused by a bacteria, so treatment is antibiotics. So wait a second. I'm sorry. You just said that mortality rates could be up to 30%. That's that's without treatment. Correct. Correct. So then with treatment, if you're treated with antibiotics, since, as you said, this is bacterial, mm-hmm. is it, I mean, how, how does that increase survival? If, I would imagine. Yes, exactly. Substantially, substantially. Um, but of course, mortality risk increases if it's not treated quickly. So this is okay. something, you know, again, these are different species of ticks than would transmit Lyme disease. But this is something that, you know, if you're in areas that you know that there is Rocky Mount spotted fever, that is, you know, a, a, certainly a disease for concern. Okay. And I'm sure we're going to talk about this, but like, what would be a red flag for a clinician, you know, like what, that, that, that you might have these 
you know, well, that you might have so, been infected. Yeah. So each of these illnesses have very distinct sets of symptoms. Okay. Um, so Rocky Mountain spotted fever, as you imagine, is called spotted fever. Um, you develop a rash, and these are these are like little pinpoint rashes, and the the rash typically starts on the extremities, the wrists, and the ankles. It also presents with fever and headache, um, and things like that. So you know, again, if you're living in an area that we know has higher levels of Rocky Mountain spotted fever because it's not it's not evenly distributed across the U.S. Right there are certain areas where it's denser and things like that. So you know those those would be kind of the warning signs. And of course you know history or recollection of a recent tick bite is always something to be aware of. And Got we're going to talk more about how to prevent all of these as we get into the episode. Okay, I'm sorry um, I interrupted. Nope. I was just so curious. Okay, keep going. That's fine. So we've <laughs> talked about a couple of parasitic infections, a couple of bacterial infections. There are several viral infections as well. And I talk about one called Powassan virus. This is actually caused by a viral infection. It's found around the world. It's relatively rare right now. Multiple tick species and mosquitoes can transmit it, and it has fatality rates of 20 to 25%. So this is certainly, um, you know, something of concern, but it is rare. There is no treatment aside from supportive care once someone gets infected with this. Um, and then I won't, I won't get through kind of too many more, but the big big takeaway, I think, is that there are many different tick-borne infections or many different tick-borne pathogens. They're spread by lots of different species of ticks. um, And each pathogen is going to be treated differently. They infect um, people through different processes. And something else to consider is that not all ticks carry pathogens. Only about 10 to 20% of all ticks have been estimated to even have any pathogens inside them to begin with. Um, Mm. So the common misconception that all ticks have Lyme disease, first of all, or all ticks have diseases that they can spread is a common misconception. Okay. So we're talking about tick-borne illnesses, but what about Lyme disease specifically? Mm -hmm. Can you so talk Lyme about that? <laughs> yeah, I could talk all day about that. Okay. But um, so Lyme disease is a bacterial infection. So as I said, we have viral infections, we have parasitic infections, we have bacterial infections. So this is caused by a bacterium called Borrelia burgdorferi. Um, there's a there's a new kind of subspecies called Borrelia mayoni, which was discovered at the Mayo Clinic, which is why it's Mayo. And then in the in Europe, there's also two Borrelia species called Borrelia garinii and Borrelia afzelii that also can spread or transmit Lyme disease. Um, Borrelia burgdorferi is a type of bacteria called a spirochete. And they're called that because they're a corkscrew shape. They're literally shaped like a spiral and they move in a corkscrew fashion. Another related spirochete is the syphilis bacterium, which is called Treponema pallidum. And they are actually in the same family of spirochetes. I always love that little tidbit. But um, so Borrelia burgdorferi is a very complex bacterium, and there are many different strains of it. Um, And this is very important when we talk about the disease itself. So this is kind of like the COVID-19 variants you all have been hearing about, but there are more of these, and they're more distinct because this is a bacterium. It's a bigger organism. It, It actually is its own independently reproducing organism, where a virus is a very simplistic microorganism that needs a host cell. Um, So there's a lot more genes. There's a lot more protein. So there's a lot more places where one Borrelia burgdorferi is going to be different from a different one. Mm -hmm. And I love this quote here because it really sums up a lot of the, um, 
I don't want to call it propaganda, but a lot of the attention to Lyme disease. Although Lyme disease is a public health concern, extensive publicity has resulted in a degree of anxiety about Lyme disease that is out of proportion to the actual morbidity that it causes. So you're saying that Lyme disease needs a new PR person. (laughs) Definitely. And we're going to talk in much more detail about the issues surrounding that next week. But suffice it to say, a lot of public figures that are not scientists or medical professionals have created a sphere of misinformation and have exaggerated how severe Lyme disease is, how debilitating it is, and and ultimately that has led to a lot of fear-based concerns about it. Okay, um, so ha- how do we actually get infected with Lyme disease? <laughs> So infection is caused by the bite of an infected tick. And these in the U.S. are two tick species, only two, two species. One is called Ixodes scapularis and one is called Ixodes pacificus. So these are the black-legged tick and the western black-legged tick. Um, So these ticks have a two- to three-year life cycle. And in the very first spring, the eggs that were laid the previous year, they hatch and the larvae immediately start looking for blood meals. So they need to feed in order to survive. That first that first year, the larvae survive the wintering. It's called overwintering. And the ones that survive, obviously some do not, they emerge in that following spring as nymphs. And again, they immediately start looking for a blood meal. My gosh. So, so <laughs> when the eggs hatch, um, there's no kind of trans-ovo or um, egg transfer of infection. So like if an infected adult is, you know, laying an egg, those larvae aren't going to be infected. But they could pick up an infection from that first blood meal. So when they emerge the following year as a nymph, they could already be infected. And so nymphs, which are a very, very tiny tick, um, can actually be be, you know, ones that are higher rate of potentially transmitting the infection. Hmm. But um, ticks are really interesting because they do this thing called questing. And and I'm going to, we're going to put a link of a video of this on the website. But basically what they do is ticks, ticks live in the dirt and the leaves and the grass, right? So what they basically do, they're not like mosquitoes where they fly around. So they're not super mobile. So they require kind of an animal to pass by them for them to grab on and find their way to get some blood. So they they use their back legs to hang on to the blade of grass. And I wish you could see me right now. But they, <laughs> they wave their front legs around in the air um, like they're kind of dancing. And, and they, they're waiting for an animal to walk by them that they can grab onto and start climbing on them. Um, and this is called questing. And, and honestly, I think it's adorable, but everybody else thinks I'm a weirdo. That but. is so cool. We have to post about that. We have to post yeah. picture or video. Wait, so Andrew, you used the phrase blood meal and I'm mm. horrified. So who do they, or who or what do they feed on? What's a blood so, meal? <laughs> so a blood meal is just, you know, that's that's their food. They, they, they drink blood, right? So they'll feed on most warm-blooded animals. So mammals, um, birds, They'll also often feed on reptiles and amphibians. Um, their, their, their favorite meals are usually smaller mammals, so rodents, um, you know, dogs and cats, of course. Um, those are kind of opportunistic hosts. Adult ticks often will feed, and this is very um, specific to what tick species we're talking about, but if we're talking about the Lyme disease ticks, the Ixodes ticks, their favorite meal is white-footed mice, their favorite host. Um, so that's why the deer tick is actually kind of a misnomer because the deer is usually only fed on by the adult ticks. 
So hmm. the white-footed mice is kind of the favorite meal of the larva in the nymph stages. Um, and humans are what we call an incidental or a dead-end host because the way that this whole life cycle happens is the tick first picks up the bacteria from an infected animal. And then that bacterium lives in the tick until the tick feeds on what we call a naive animal or an animal that's not infected. And if it feeds long enough, it's able to now infect that animal it feeds on and, it, and it's so on and so forth. It can't do that with humans, right? One, if a human gets infected, they're not living in the wild where, you know, they're going to be now a new, you know, reservoir for another tick to pick up the infection from. It doesn't, it doesn't happen that way biologically. So for the bacteria and even really for the ticks, you know, humans aren't really beneficial for them. So basically what ends up happening is, you know, the ticks are questing, right? They're hanging on this blade of grass or waiting for something to walk by. And once they grab on, it takes them a while. They have to climb up that that animal, right? They have to make their way to some portion of the animal's body to find a nice, you know, habitable spot to attach on. And so they have they have a, a mouth part called a hypostome that they essentially insert. You know, it's like a little like a little mini needle, and they cement themselves into the host. And they often secrete anesthetic in their saliva so the host, you know, doesn't feel that they've been bitten. And and they feed for several days. And it's a very small volume of blood, of course, but they feed for several days before dropping off um, to go digest their blood meal. And you know, the blood has lots of nutrients, right? It has glucose and it has proteins and has all sorts of things in it that's that's really it's what enables the ticks to survive Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so andrea we got this question a lot the herd wants to know how long does a tick need to be attached to a host in order to infect them it's a great question, and it's one that has been, you know, surrounded by misinformation. So, you know, the first thing is you have to understand that the the bacteria kind of lives inside the tick until, you know, it has an opportunity to get transmitted to a mammal. And I'll use mammal kind of, you know, here, even though we know incidentally birds and reptiles and amphibians can get infected. But the temperature and the nutrients are very different inside a tick versus inside a mammal. So inside a tick the average temperature is about 23 Celsius or 73 Fahrenheit versus a mammal, which is 37 Celsius, 98 <laughs> Fahrenheit. Um, and so there's this process called the enzootic cycle, which is this complex life cycle that the bacteria has to implement in order to survive in these two very distinct environments. And so we actually study this in, in my old lab, and it involves a complex regulation of all sorts of different things inside the bacteria. They have to turn on and express different proteins depending on which environment they're living on. And in order to study this, we had a tickery in our lab. So it was like a little hatchery where we had different ticks of different life stages um, that were both uninfected and infected that we could conduct experiments about transmission. So once the tick bites a mammal, uh, the bacteria have to get from the tick into a mammal and then, you know, from that infected mammal back into a tick and so on and so forth. So when the tick initially starts feeding, um, it takes in blood, which is rich, as I said, with oxygen and glucose, and that's food for the tick, but it's also food for the bacteria. So the bacteria normally live in this compartment in the tick called the midgut, and they slow their metabolism down when there's no blood in the tick because there's just not a lot of nutrients available in there. Um, there are some 
some carbohydrates, but it's not as energy rich as glucose is. So they live in this compartment called the midgut, but they slow down their metabolism, they slow down their reproduction. And but once that blood meal comes in, now the bacteria have this glucose and they start to kind of reactivate these metabolic pathways and they start to reproduce more actively. And so eventually enough of them reproduce that there's this density in the midgut that they're essentially forced into the salivary gland of the tick. And that's the point at which they can be transmitted. So, so that process, it's not, it's not the bacteria kind of actively swimming into the salivary glands. It's basically there's not enough space for all of them in the midgut anymore, and some of them get forced into the salivary gland. And this process takes a minimum of 24 hours, but typically 36 to 48 hours. So we actually conducted um, some of, we call these pull-off experiments in our lab. So one of my old lab mates, his name's um, Dr. Chris Pappas, he still actually studies Lyme disease to this day, but he published a paper and demonstrated in our own lab when we pulled off pull-off experiments. Um, we couldn't transmit the bacteria to mice. So these were infected ticks and uninfected mice. We couldn't transmit any mice in less than 62 hours. Other labs have demonstrated that there's a 10% chance of transmission by 48 hours. There was no chance of transmission at zero hours, a 70% chance by 72 hours. So it's, it's, it's pretty hard to transmit even if you have a tick that you've loaded with bacteria and you know is infected. And so that's why the current that's why the current CDC recommendations say, you know, we we kind of err on the side of caution. So we say 36 to 48 hours in the lab. It's been longer than that. Right. 60 hours, 72 hours and so on and so forth. And it's interesting because this is very different from other tick-borne pathogens. So as an example, the Powassan virus that I mentioned before that has a 20 to 25 percent mortality rate, but is pretty rare, that can be transmitted within 15 minutes of biting. And something like Anaplasma phagocytophilum can be transmitted within 24 hours. So there are things that are obviously more cause for concern than Borrelia, um, which is our Lyme disease bacterium. Okay, so we got this this next question a bunch of times. So the herd wants to know, can Lyme disease be sexually transmitted or transmitted from person to person? So no. In a word, um, there there's a lot of misinformation. There is no evidence of sexual transmission. There is no evidence of person-to-person -person transmission. There's not even evidence of animal-to-person transmission. Um, so say your dog got Lyme disease. Your dog is not going to give you Lyme disease. It has to be through the bite of an infected tick, and that tick has to be attached for at least 24 hours. So when we're talking about kind of best practices to ensure that you're not at risk for Lyme disease, your best practices are tick checks when you're outside in areas where we know Lyme disease is present and tick repellent. So 95% of Lyme disease cases are actually from 14 states across the Northeast and the Midwest. So if you're in an area where there's a higher chance of a tick being infected and you possibly getting bitten by, by a tick, 
you can easily be safe by being smart. And I and I grew up in Connecticut, right? My mom teaches at East Lyme Middle School. I grew up in Eastern Connecticut. I went to college on Long Island. I lived in New York City. I lived in Westchester, New York. I've lived in the epicenter of Lyme disease my entire life. I've I've been bitten by hundreds of ticks. I've never gotten any tick-borne infection in my life. And that that comes with doing proactive tick checks wearing your tick repellents. We've even done things in the field where we've collected ticks intentionally. So you drag a sheet through the tall grass, a white sheet, and you pick off the ticks that that you find that you pull on the sheet. And even intentionally searching for ticks, I've not gotten any infections from ticks. So Andrea, you're talking about repellents and prevention. Now, I mean, I I live in Florida, which is, you know, land of the mosquitoes. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm very familiar with DEET. Are we talking about DEET or is there some other type of repellent? How can we prevent this? So the two best repellents for ticks, and this is for skin application, is in fact DEET. So 20 to 30% DEET works for eight hours on ticks, where it works for 12 hours on mosquitoes. And picaridin, 20% picaridin. These are the top two repellents. Um, There are some places that recommend some essential oils like lemon oil and things like that. The data is not strong. They have not been demonstrated to be effective. And DEET and picaridin have been tested for efficacy and safety um, for the concentrations that you're going to use. The other thing you want to consider, so those are repellents, meaning that it's going to deter the tick from biting you if it gets on you. The other thing you might want to do is think about treating your clothing with a pesticide. And the best pesticide for ticks and mosquitoes, actually, is a compound called permethrin. And you can actually get pre-treated items of clothing or you can treat your own. So you spray your clothing, you let it dry, um, and then you wear it. And this actually will kill ticks and it doesn't just repel them. So the best practice is when you're going outside, especially in high grasses or places that there may in fact be ticks, a combination of both of those things. Hmm. Um, And then on top of that, you want to do tick checks every time you get back home. So taking a shower when you've been out in the woods or taking a shower when you've been out in kind of places that there might be ticks. And you want to check from the bottom up. So if a tick ends up in your armpit, it didn't land on your head and crawl down. It crawled up from your feet. Um, Ticks don't live in trees. They're in the grasses and they're hanging off the blades of grass doing that questing thing. So, you know, ticks also like warm kind of cozy places. So your groin, behind your kneecaps, your armpits, behind your ears, um, places that are kind of protected and kind of warm and cozy because once they cement themselves in, if they're on your arm or they're on your leg and they're getting scratched by clothing, it's not an advantageous place for them to latch onto. So like, you know, if you need someone to help you check for ticks, that's fine. You know, you you also want to check places like your butt crack, you know, ticks, ticks, ticks may go in there. So, you know, it- <laughs> Andrea, you, I have to say, I'm sorry, up until that last butt crack comment, you kind of, I get the sense that you have a little soft spot for ticks that you think that I'm, they're cute. You're talking about how they cozy up. You you like <laughs> that, that thing where they, what is it called? Where they get onto the, questing. the place of questing. You love the questing. Um, you have a soft I mean, spot. I, I just, I have an appreciation for them, but of course, okay. You know, they transmit disease. So, you know, we, we, and, and ultimately the reason that the prevalence of them is increasing is because of climate change.
change and and Mm -hmm. human activity. So, you know, a lot of this is on us to be more responsible. So, you know, your repellents, your pesticides, your tick checks, those are best practices to prevent tick bites. So, so what if you, you do a check and you see that there's a tick on you, you know, you've been bitten by tick. What do you do? So if it's still kind of crawling around, because it takes them a couple, usually it takes them between 15 minutes and two hours to find a a place to bite. So if you find it just crawling on you, just pull it off and, you know, you can flush it or you can put it in a jar of alcohol, uh, rubbing alcohol to kill it. Um, But if you're actually bitten by a tick, the only way to remove it is mechanical removal by force. So high quality tweezers, you pull the skin taut around the head of the tick, you kind of nestle the tweezer blade as close to your skin as possible, pinch tightly and pull vertically up. You don't twist, you don't dig in with the tip of the tweezer, you don't use a match, you don't try and suffocate the tick using a Vaseline, it will not remove itself, don't use any other methods that you ever hear, they do not work, they can cause infection, and and they're not going to help you remove the tick. Hmm. What are some of the things, I, I, I hate to even put it out there, but what do people say to do that you're saying you absolutely shouldn't do? So one thing people say you want to you want to touch a, a lighted match to the the tick and it will kind of remove itself or you you know cover the tick with vaseline to suffocate it and it will kind of un you know unbury itself that doesn't happen and that's you know those are just going to potentially cause like skin infections or other complications you you just don't want to do that i've heard all sorts of weird weird theories about it you you just want to use a high quality tweezer and you want to pull in one swift motion <laughs> Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, so should we freak out? <laughs> no. Okay, t- tell Not us. Not at all. So as I mentioned, I've been bitten by hundreds of ticks. Doing checks is going to make sure you catch ticks, um, and you'll be able to kind of track when was I outside, when was this tick likely from. So that enables you to kind of keep an eye on things in case. Um, but as I mentioned, most of these you know pathogens we're concerned about take a certain period of time to transmit. So typically, if you pull a tick out and you know it's been a short period of time, there's no cause for concern. Some people will develop redness at the bite site due to um, actually mild allergies to like the secretions in the salivary gland or irritation from the mouth parts of the tick. So it's kind of similar to like if like I get really, really pronounced skin reactions to mosquito bites, like huge welts. Um, it's kind of similar to that where your your immune system is like, oh, these uh, these chemicals in the tick saliva just didn't react with you very well. But and, and a lot of people are like, oh, you got bit by a tick. You got to take prophylactic antibiotics to make sure you didn't get Lyme disease. And and this is not typically recommended. There are only very specific instances that this is actually recommended for. And and typically this. This is only in areas that have high rates of Lyme disease, and they'll give you a single dose of doxycycline, and and that reduces the risk. It's a you know potential exposure prophylaxis, but it's only situations where um, you don't have a contraindication for the the antibiotic. The you know that it is the species 
of concern. So it's the Ixodes tick. It is either an adult or a nymph of it. You know that the attachment time is more than that 36 hours. Um, and you can start that that single dose within 72 hours of removing the tick. And there are a list of states that this would be classified under. Aside from all of those criteria, prophylactic antibiotics are not recommended. All right. So say you actually got infected. So you removed your tick, but it, but it, say you got a tick bite. So all these things align up, right? You got a tick bite. It happened to be the Ixodes black-legged tick. It happened to be one of the 10 to 20% that happens to be infected with Borrelia or burgdorferi. Now it's important to note that's a national average. There are some places in the country where the chance is zero. And then the tick fed on you more than 24 hours without you noticing, and you happen to get infected with Borrelia burgdorferi. So then now you would have what we call Lyme disease. So Andrea, actually, just before you get into this, I'm sorry, what is the actual prevalence of Lyme disease? Do you have a sense so, of it? Yeah. So there's there's between 30, and 30 to 40,000 reported cases every year, but we estimate that this is, um, it's probably about a tenfold lower. So we estimate there's probably about 300 to 400,000 cases every year. But again, this is kind of nationally, and 95% of these are clustered around those 14 states in the Northeast and Midwest that have high rates of this bacteria. Okay, got it. So what is Lyme disease? What's next? All right. So Lyme <laughs> disease is so named because of a cluster of pediatric arthritis cases that were reported in Lyme, Connecticut. So East Lyme, that's the town my mom teaches in. Um, Old Lyme was the other, other town, and then also a neighboring town called East Haddon. This was in 1975. And so so they did some epidemiological investigation and they determined that these occurrences of pediatric arthritis coincided with kids reporting tick bites after playing in wooded areas in the spring and summer and several children actually reported having seen rashes on their skin and so really know what was going on. But in 1982, so, you know, seven years later, this researcher called Willie Bergdorfer identified the causative agent and it was named after him. So it's Borrelia burgdorferi after Willie Bergdorfer. But there are actually historical reports and actually um, DNA evidence based on fossil records that this bacteria has existed for up to 60,000 years. Huh. Okay. That's cool. I didn't realize it was around that long. Um, okay. So how does, what are some of the symptoms? How does it present? So it, again, if all those situations line up, you got your tick bite, it was the right species, it happened to be infected, it happened to be attached for long enough. The, the variety of symptoms are this, you know, you get these generalized symptoms, fever, headache, fatigue. And there's also this characteristic bullseye rash that we call erythema migrans. Okay. Tell us some more about that. And, and also, does it always present with the red rings and rash? Yep. So this erythema migrans or EM rash presents in about 60 to 80% of patients. And the rash itself is actually caused by the immune response to the bacteria. So it's kind of concentric around where the tick bite is. And it's because of inflammation, production of immune chemicals, recruitment of other immune cells. And this typically will occur within days to weeks of the tick bite. Now, it's important to note that not everybody may notice the rash. It doesn't always look exactly the same. And particularly if you have darker skin, it might be harder to see. So this is, a, of course, why we always recommend prevention before, you know, treatment. Now, if someone has the erythema migrans, bullseye rash, that's typically sufficient for clinical diagnosis. And they will start you on your treatment. And we'll get into that in just a minute. But if you don't have an erythema migrans, but you have a lot of the criteria, you have a lot of those other kind of specific, non-specific symptoms, and you 
recall getting bitten by a tick or things like that, there's a two-step diagnostic process. And, and I won't get into the details about it this week. We'll talk more about it next week. But sometimes these tests yield false positive results. And so this often leads to overdiagnosing or misdiagnosing a person with Lyme disease when they don't actually have Lyme disease. And part of this is because the tests are actually looking for the immune response to the bacteria, not necessarily the bacteria itself. And the immune response is, is complicated here. It's not, it's not quite cut and dry as it is with many other bacterial infections. And it's not like strep throat where there's tons of bacteria in the throat. You can do a really easy swab and you can culture them. It's a tick bite, right? So there's a lot of situations where a person may be reported as having Lyme disease, but but it's just because they had a false positive test result. So, Andrew, we got this question a lot. You know, I heard there's no cure. Is there a cure? Is there a treatment? Tell us. So it's a bacteria, right? So bacteria can be killed with antibiotics. Antibiotics are chemicals that kill bacteria. So it is completely curable. The standard treatment for what we call early stage Lyme disease is first two lines of defense is doxycycline, for 10 to 14 days or amoxicillin for 14 days. Now, if the bacteria, I I, I wanna kind of figure out the best way to explain this, but okay, so there is another stage of Lyme disease that's called disseminated Lyme disease. And if the Lyme disease kind of progresses to that, the treatment again is doxycycline for 14 to 20 days. So slightly, slightly longer antibiotic treatment. And this kills the bacteria. There's no evidence that longer term antibiotics are beneficial. So as I mentioned, Borrelia itself is a complex bacterium and there are many different strains of the bacteria. And all of these different strains trigger different immune responses. So typically when you get bitten by an infected tick, even if you didn't treat the infection, the infection would self-resolve, meaning your immune system would clear the infection even without antibiotics within four weeks. Now, in the instance where the bacterium itself are able to migrate from the site of the tick bite, which is very, very rare, this is only about 10% of the cases, so this is only about 10% of the different strains of bacteria actually have the capability to do this. But what ends up happening is those ones can migrate to other sites in the body, like the joint, the central nervous system, and the heart. And they can cause tissue damage and inflammation in those places. So that's where that pediatric arthritis or the Lyme arthritis. Um, some people develop carditis, which is inflammation of the heart. And that can cause tissue damage or inflammation in those places. But again, Even without treatment, most of those will still self-resolve. But if a person presented with those symptoms, they would simply be treated with those antibiotics for a slightly longer time period. And again, that would kill all the bacteria. So Andrea, another question that we got multiple times is, is it true that Lyme disease never leaves your body and that it lives dormant forever? So it's... Not true. It is completely curable. It is a bacterial infection and the antibiotics we use are extremely effective at killing the bacteria. It is also not fatal. Um, Unlike some of the other tick-borne pathogens we've discussed, you're not dying from Lyme disease. There's been 11 published reports of what we call Lyme carditis, which is inflammation of the heart. And Lyme carditis, which is very rare to begin with, it's less than 1% of all Lyme disease cases. There's only been 11 published reports that have ever led to fatalities. And we're talking over millions and millions of cases of Lyme disease. And, And once you kill the bacteria, 
the bacteria are dead. It's not living in your body dormant. That doesn't form these little kind of, you know, spores or things like that that I've heard a lot of rumors about. And again, we're going to dig in more on that um, next week. But the one issue is that if, for example, you were in that very rare proportion that you had disseminated Lyme disease where it spread to, say, the joint or the heart or the central nervous system, if the bacteria, the immune response to the bacteria caused tissue damage, um, sometimes that damage can last beyond the point where you've killed the bacteria. So you might have, you know, arthritis or, you know, joint pain after your antibiotic treatment has been completed. It doesn't mean that there's any bacteria. It's just what we call sequelae of the infection. So it's just, you know, persistent tissue damage. And again, that will typically resolve over time as well. So Andrea, I, I get the sense, I think we're going to save for next week some of the questions that we received about chronic Lyme and whether yes. that's a real thing. So any more to, to say, uh, you know, this episode is more of an introduction to Lyme disease, I think, but it, anything else that you wanted to highlight before we wrap up this episode? Yeah. So the one other thing before we kind of wrap up is that, you know, Lyme disease is, is actually quite a straightforward bacterial infection. Infection. However, because those symptoms of Lyme disease are so nonspecific, fever, fatigue, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, you have a headache. And if you don't personally notice that you had your erythema migrans, you that bullseye rash, or if you don't recall having a tick bite or things like that, um, which maybe you didn't, right? So Lyme disease is often used as a scapegoat for other ailments. And that's partly why there's so much controversy around it. Gotten a lot of attention in kind of pop culture and amongst celebrities that, you know, kind of claim that they have this kind of long-term infection. Um, and and it's, a, it's a big problem among the scientific community. But we are going to talk more about that on next week's episode. But ultimately, again, it is a tick-borne infection that's only transmitted by certain species of ticks. The tick has to be infected. It has to be attached for a certain period of time. Once you're diagnosed with it, you can kill all those bacteria with a very effective antibiotic. Andrea, this is such an interesting episode, and we're all so lucky to have the opportunity to learn from you, and I'm so excited for part two next week. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. There's a lot more to get into. Um, I know it's kind of dense, but I think it's really important. As I grew up in the Northeast, I've been inundated with misinformation. Um, I know it's frustrating to not have all the information or to hear all this conflicting information. So I'm hoping that we can dispel a lot of that through this little mini series. So thanks for joining us today. We hope you learned a thing or two. And if you like our pod, please share with your friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Please also make sure to check out our website at www.unbiasedscipod.com. That's where you can see all of our show notes and links to all of the sources that we are discussing here and on previous episodes. You can also pick yourself up some Unbiased Science merch or leave us a donation. Next week, since obviously we didn't get to everything, we are going to continue our discussion about Lyme disease. And what we're going to focus on is the controversy, the misinformation, and debunking a lot of the pseudoscience around Lyme disease. And we, of course, will continue to provide updates on COVID-19 vaccine progress and pandemic updates on our social media accounts. So be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Yeah, oh, I am a science.